0: Ultimately, the, the three of us are trying to talk about this as a piece of art
1: Really well done, but I don't know if I am even I can even speak about this because it's so And it is a
2: full-on race war
1: Really quite an interesting space for the show to
0: explore The Ridge Crockett It
1: was such a good casting
0: She's actually Silk Spectre That's Silk Spectre? Oh, you killed him in the first episode, great Regina fucking King She is the best posh aristocrat dickhead Ooh, like i got my popcorn i'm eddie
2: broadcasting live from inside the power band this is the blah in this episode everybody dies i'm your host the mulverine along with jar Higo. hey and <laughs> c-lab forever What's up? What is up, nerds out there in nerd land, folks? Welcome to the podcast. This week, we are taking a dive into the world of the reimagined Watchmen series that is currently airing on HBO. We're going to be tackling the first four episodes. And algorithm, you are going to start us off.
1: I'm going to drive the owl flying machine on this one.
2: You're gonna you're gonna drive Archie on this one. Hell yeah!
1: Just a quick uh, a quick. Interjection! The way that you greeted us in this episode is the way you should have greeted us in the Fifth Element episode to match Bruce Willis's enthusiasm.
2: Oh, <laughs> good one, man! Hey, you know what? Just a, just a quick quick thing about Bruce Willis. Sea <laughs> grunts, going going coolers.
1: coolers. It's wet and it's dry.
2: <laughs> ma, 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 ma.
1: that uh, that's the new thing anytime uh every time Kurt Willis's name is mentioned, we have to break into song,
2: oh my God, yes,
1: um, so anyways, watchmen, watchmen, yeah, dude, I really wanted to talk about the series. Just because of how mind-blown and confused I was watching the first episode. Same here. And was also kind of thinking it didn't make a ton of sense to wait till the end of the season and do a a big wrap-up. I agree. You had the the idea to split it into two parts, and I think that's an awesome idea. So that's uh, the main reason why we're getting into it today.
0: I've been chomping at the bit, man. I've just been waiting.
1: So my, like, the reason that I say mind blown is that like, I was really confused with how I felt about the first episode. And like, it kind of got to the point in the episode where I was like, this is really well done, but I don't know if I'm even, I can even speak about this because it's so, you know, racial and so like, crazy that like i don't even know if i have the fucking right to talk about it and you know after watching the first episode and then trying to kind of get some viewpoints from people of color on it it was an interesting series of kind of, I don't know, educational moments for me um, Mm. where I learned that the opening sequence in Tulsa is like actually a historical thing that I wasn't aware of and true. And I was like similar to how I feel about, the Handmaid's Tale. I um, It's heavy watching at times. And part of me as like a fucking privileged ass white dude gets confused or kind of concerned at times about like what opinions I should share publicly. Like I'm more than happy to talk to friends and, and kind of like shoot the shit about any topic. But like when, when it's a, going public, I don't know, it's just a little bit more delicate, maybe, you know, you don't want to you don't want to offend people and you don't want to be dropping true shitty things. So sure. I watched the first episode and I was just like, I don't know how I feel like whether we can talk about this because of how focused it is on kind of race. And, and and it was interesting to kind of look at some uh, various people's, Twitter feeds and articles that were written by, you know, African American writers or people on Twitter and stuff, and, and was able to kind of see that the feeling from that community was quite positive, And they were pretty stoked about, or at least the people that I listened to were pretty stoked about how realistic it was and how like, you know, the race war thing is like a major component of the series. And so from that, I was able to kind of like, figure out how i felt more clearly i guess and so as an opener i thought that was an interesting first reaction to the to the first episode for me i'm not sure if you guys had anything similar but
2: well firstly i didn't realize that it was based on a lot of actual historical events mm. because as we know in the from the graphic novel and in, in the film it's a what if alternate timeline Yeah. Of what happens in the US. So I I really didn't know. And I was going based on that premise in my mind. Okay. That being said, you know, it lined up with all of the other horrible atrocities that have happened to the African-American community in this country. And it was uh, shocking in its brutality and seeing those little kids sent off in that truck in particular, uh the baby and the little boy really really tugged at me on a lot of levels, man, especially when the truck crashed and he finds the baby in the the field and like how frightening that must be for little kids, especially two little kids of color living in that era like yeah it's it, it's really intense, and the first two notes I literally have. I was so like engrossed immediately in what was going on. It sucked me right in. And my first two notes are what is going on and what am I watching? Yeah. I was so confused and blown away and, you know, the content was really intense the story, whatever. So that's my sort of opening.
1: Yeah. And just to jump in real quick, I think that's a much more concise way to kind of say what it took me five minutes to say, like, What is going on? What am I watching? And then, you know, if it was a fictional story only, is it okay to fictionalize this, like, really heavy-duty mass murderous scene? And then finding out it was true, finding out it was true painted a a, a different picture for me and, and gave me a chance to think about it differently. So yeah, just to kind of flesh that thought out a little further because I think I think it was a little bit rambly.
0: But wow, you guys really said it. I, I guess all I would say is, Chad, you were I think you were building towards uh talking about uh, being sensitive about things and, you know, worrying about, you know, yourself as a white man, uh, talking about this stuff. And I, I'd just like to say, um I think ultimately the the three of us are trying to talk about this as a piece of art. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I want to be sensitive as possible uh, to, to any to anything that anybody might have to say about this. And if 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 we step on anybody's toes, please, uh, we're not trying to and tell us about it and, and we'll listen. You know,
1: yeah, that's a great point.
0: I guess that's all I have to add.
1: By definition, our perspectives are from a place of privilege. And, you know, it's it's likely that some of the nuance is going to be missed and so, like, I, I think that's especially why I, I was seeking perspectives from, you know, the African-American community. And, like, I, I follow a fair amount of diverse people on Twitter, and I try and listen to diverse podcasts and stuff just to kind of not be in a bubble. Sure. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a cool podcast that The New York Times puts out called Still Processing, and they have a recent episode where they talked about The Watchmen quite positively. And then there's a dude on Twitter – michael harriet h-a-r-r-i-o-t I'll, I'll chuck this in the show notes but he had some amazing threads about the opening sequence and Watchmen, and even just some of the other stuff like a really amazing thread on wall street and how like i think it was citigroup citibank that was founded on like the slave trade and just like some fascinating historical stuff so
2: wow that's a nugget right there
1: yeah i'll, I'll chuck i'll chuck links to those threads in the show notes but uh, this is probably a shitty way to say it, but like, I feel like hearing from those people and hearing what they had to say, I felt like I was willing to give myself permission to to talk about this, just because of how like uncomfortable I was as a as a privileged dude being like, let's talk about race. You know, it's like, yeah, you don't know shit about it, bro. So,
0: right, sure,
1: I don't know. I, I realize that we don't want to talk, you know, about this forever and ever, but it's very much I think worth bringing up at the beginning because it's a really quite a
0: interesting space for the show to explore.
2: Yeah, especially from the the get go.
0: Yeah. It took some processing um, because I didn't, I had no idea this was going to be sort of an angle that they were going to come from with the storytelling. And I'm glad they did. Me too. But yeah, it was like you said, uh, for a minute, I was like, what the hell am I watching here? Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. I think to add to what Chad said, you're right. We're, you know, coming from an angle of, you know, privileged whiteness. But at the same time, this is the stuff that people don't want to talk about. And they haven't wanted to talk about forever. And everybody wants to sweep it under the rug and hope it goes away. And it's it's not. And it hasn't. And it won't. So from that angle, I feel like it's good to talk about it. Awareness is important.
1: Even if it's painful.
2: Yeah. Even if it is painful. Yeah. Because the, the idea is to move beyond it. Yeah. And you're never going to move beyond it unless you're addressing it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, calling it out. That's that's what I'm going to say about that.
1: It, to tie it in to The Watchmen as a whole, I, I hadn't watched the film in a couple of years, although I've read the comic or graphic novel or whatever a few times and I've watched the movie a few times. But uh, in preparation for today, I, I watched the film again. I watched like the ultimate freaking uber cut or whatever, the three-hour long one. And yeah, yeah. Refreshing all the pirate
2: my, animation in it, yeah.
1: The movie, yeah, yeah. So watching the, the film again and then rereading the last few issues of the comic because of the different ending again, it reminded me that Alan Moore's diving into the Cold War in the original creation was like a perfect a perfect place to set a story at the time that it came out. And it dealt with like U S society during the cold war, during the like nuclear Holocaust scare and how that's not overly relevant to us anymore. Post nine 11 and post, you know, recent elections and kind of the white nationalist thing kind of kicking back in. And so I feel like, you know, setting the show in modern days in an alternate universe But in modern days with similar types of issues relating to racial discrimination is a much more appropriate place for us to explore now, as opposed to having it set in the Cold War again. Mm. It seems like the creators were like, let's leave the Watchmen film and comic as itself and let's take that universe to what's most relevant now and what's most relevant now in the opinions of the creators seems to be you know, racism. And I definitely tend to agree based on watching this, that it's a great place to really dig deep. And even though it's can be a really challenging at times to watch.
2: Well, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because they're touching on stuff. That's even older than that. And yet not older than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting.
2: Like, like the, those historical events that happened, like the town and, you know, the massacre and the whole thing, if that actually happened, I'm assuming that was... When did that take place? Did you find that out in your diggings?
1: The 20s or something. But from what I understand, that was like historically accurate.
2: In the 1920s? I believe so. And then to bring it very much in everybody's face in 2019, because what we're watching takes place in 2019. And it is a full-on race war between a like... Ku Klux the KKK on steroids and pretty much everybody else you know what I mean
1: yeah it's like a more liberal society than we live in in this universe and the supremacists reaction to that
2: yeah it's like liberal and yet not liberal at the same time it's it's like they've created a place where both exist
1: yeah totally um yeah I feel like I feel like we've covered a lot of the like heavy, heavy meaty topic stuff, and as Ben, as you mentioned like we we want to be really cautious about how we approach this, and so we're perfectly willing to hear from anyone that feels like uh. They have something to say about any of the things that we discuss. But rather than going super deep down a rabbit hole of like modern society's problems, maybe we should uh, should shift it to uh, more discussion of the, the, the show itself. Um, you mentioned a minute ago, Ben, you know, that you want to really look at this as a as a piece of art. And so maybe, uh, yeah, shifting gears would be a good time to shift gears.
2: I was just going to say, let's bring the energy up and, and shift to talking about the cast, because my next note is Regina. Fucking king,
0: <laughs> she awesome, dude.
2: is so fucking awesome, man! I cannot say enough about this woman. She has been in some of my favorite films. She's been in virtually every movie ever made since 1970. Like she's won a ton of awards, a bunch of primetime Emmys, an Academy Award. Like she's incredible. Jerry Maguire, Boys in the Hood, Miss Congeniality. This. The list goes on and on and on and on. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she's just great. She's absolutely amazing. I love her, man.
1: And I really liked uh, the pairing of her and Don Johnson in uh, in the first episode.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. Right?
1: It was such a good casting.
2: Boys in the Hood was her first movie, actually. Really? Yeah. And she was in Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, Friday, Jerry Maguire, How Stella Got Her Groove Back Enemy of the State Mighty Joe Young I mean So much stuff Anyway She's just an incredibly accomplished actress I think she's a really great actress as well In terms of her skill and ability Mm. And it's no wonder that she's had an incredibly rich And uh, successful career And done a variety of different things So I'm a huge fan What can I say? I'm so glad that she's in this, and she's perfect as Sister Knight and Angela Abar.
1: She's rock solid in this, man. No doubt. And I mean, I've, I've been familiar with her just in passing and never really paid a ton of attention, but you know, this is just a perfect role for her, and she hits it out of the park.
2: It is. And she is one of those actors, actresses that you... You know, you you may not know who she is by name, but like as soon as you see her face, you're like, oh, right, she was in X, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's That's how many things she's been in. So, yeah, she's just great. And I think Ben mentioned the pairing between her and Don Johnson, who, again, that's my second note, Don fucking Johnson. Awesome.
1: Yeah, it's nice to see him get a meteor role.
2: Totally, man. And the two of them together are really, really great.
1: Why do you think, like, this is a, a a slight digression but on the topic of of the two of them why do you think that he was flying archie do you think he's night owl
0: Ah, man i'm really confused
2: about that i i well should we save that as a section of the podcast of this episode like 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 what we think is going on
1: yeah that section will be titled what the fuck is going on with this show so look out for that in your chapter notes
0: exactly exactly yeah um 'Cause I'm I'm that's still where I'm at with the show. Like Yeah, me too. I I'm gonna have a hard time talking about it because I'm not really sure really what uh their relationship even is. Yeah. Right? I mean right. we're being led down a lot of avenues here. <laughs> and not given a lot of information uh in the show yet so it's it's very it's kind of up in the air and i'm not really sure what's going on like what the fuck is the deal with the whatever we'll get into it later um i don't want to continue on right but that's
2: why i started us off with the cast because it's like let's talk about the cast and then we can go from there it's the perfect jumping off point let's plow through that one first (laughs) so anyway let's let's pick up where we left off uh second person on the list don effing johnson the ridge crockett so good he's a legend he is he's a legendary actor and he does not disappoint in this role either
1: no i liked um tim blake nelson the dude i only know him from uh oh brother or art thou as looking glass like he's great in that
2: yeah that's my third notice Tim fucking Blake Nelson.
1: Yeah, he's great as Looking Glass.
2: He's so good. The whole
1: cast is solid, man.
2: I agree. No, Tim Blake Nelson is great. He's another one of those really underrated actors. He We sort of talked about him already because he was in The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton, and he played the doctor, Mr. Blue, that he was corresponding with. He's the one puts the uh, gamma radiation into Blonsky who already has the super soldier serum inside him and creates the abomination. All right. That's Tim Blake Nelson. And he's perfect for this role. Whatever. (laughs) I know you guys hated that movie, but... No, no.
1: I just don't remember him in it. I didn't hate it.
2: I don't remember it either. He's really great in just about everything that he does. Of course, Oh Brother, Where Art There is probably like his biggest thing that he's most well known for. But he's really great in this. Great everything. His attention to detail, accent, characters, the way he plays the characters, really, really great.
1: Yeah, for sure. The strength of the cast for me in this one is like the awesomeness of the actors in some kind of bit parts. You know, so some of the parts aren't all that big, but they the shoes are filled by really awesome actors. Like even even um, Don Knotts.
0: Don Knotts
1: is uh, yeah, what's his name? Fucking I'm completely
0: Don Johnson. Mr. R- Mr. Roper.
1: Yeah, Don. Nuss. No, even even Don Johnson. You know, like he he's super solid, <laughs> and they kill him off at the beginning of the first fucking
0: episode.
2: You know. I know. Yeah, I know. I was really bummed about that. Actually,
0: I, I mean, I feel like he's going to be in a lot of flashbacks, probably. So, yeah, yeah. I thought it was odd that they sort of made him, but like they sort of advertised the show based around like, oh, Don Johnson is in this, and then it's like, oh, yeah, you killed him in the first episode. Great. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you know what? You know what? It, it reminded me of actually was Sean Bean in um season one of Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's yeah. like wait a second. I love him, man. Now he's gone. Yeah, yeah, totally. Moving right along for me, anyway. Um, I was blown away and so excited to see Louis Gossett Jr. in this. Yeah. Show, and I really wasn't sure it was him at first, and he has such a very particular way of speaking that uh I was like that's gotta be him and of course I looked it up and it was him and I was like super stoked about it. So uh loved the whole you know his whole character that tie in is great with him being her grandfather. Really, really cool. And another great actor that deserves to have some light on him again because he's really great.
1: Yeah he's amazing. I
2: mean enemy mind dude come on so good. Salvage uh, Par- Par- <laughs> insert an <laughs> annoying clip right here
0: <laughs>
2: so lewis Gossett jr and then also uh the guy that plays the red scare is an actor named andrew howard and i actually met that guy andrew howard played did you guys see limitless with bradley cooper no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A really good movie. And Andrew Howard played the sort of Eastern European kind of criminal thug guy that ex- that he borrows the money from and then later on he extorts him for the uh, NZT. And he's really great in that. And then he also played, <clears throat> excuse me, a really great part in the Hatfields and McCoys movie. That was uh, one of the last things that Bill Paxton did. Uh, and Kevin Costner was in that as well. And he was really great in that too. And then I actually met him on the set of a TV show a couple of years back uh, when I was in LA and he is um, a super cool guy and he's really buries himself in his characters and he's nothing like what you see on screen. He's uh He's really great. I'm a big fan of him. He does some good work. So
1: I'm just looking at his IMDb now. It totally blows me away that he's not Russian. He's Welsh.
2: He is Welsh. That's right. He he plays a lot of like Eastern European characters. And he was. Um, I actually met him on the set of Agent X, which was a show that was had a really cool premise, but it didn't get picked up for a second season, unfortunately. But he played one of the baddies in that probably eastern european baddies. Yeah, he's just a great great actor. So there's a lot of ammo in this cast.
1: Yeah, yeah, you even know? the smaller roles have really awesome actors in it for sure.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. You know, the uh the dad, the husband, Cal, he's great. Yeah, he's solid. Absolutely. Some of the other, you know, smaller parts that we've seen were really, really great. That's about all the notes I had on the cast. Those are the people I wanted to talk about.
1: The only other uh, one worth adding in my mind would be Jeremy Irons.
2: Oh, God, of course. What am I thinking? Irons. Definitely. I had that down here too. I just skimmed over it.
1: He like he is the best posh aristocrat dickhead. I love it.
2: Absolutely. And it's at the end of the third episode that we find out that he is Adrian Fight.
1: Yeah, that was interesting.
0: And I was like, I kind of was thinking like, he's got to be one of them right ben yeah i was i was very much thinking that the entire time but yeah
2: but i mean so
1: i didn't put two and two together really on the whole like 30 years have gone by thing i think i was too trying to figure out the story from the first few episodes and not really thinking about the who's and the what's and it wasn't until it was like plain as day in episode three that uh the the lead actress was um was silk specter and then i was like as soon as that was revealed which was made pretty obvious it's like oh well that means old mates uh Ozymandias.
2: old mate old mate chad if you have this little if you have imdb open who's the actress that plays the fbi agent because she's awesome i wanted to talk about her for just a second
0: gene smart she's actually silk specter
2: that's silk specter yeah yeah oh my god Wow, I didn't realize that, or I haven't gotten to... I didn't get to episode four, so I didn't know that.
1: No, I see, that's episode three.
0: Okay. Yeah, sir so her her, uh, her partner like is like a fanboy, and he knows everything about her. The historian, yeah, he's a, got a PhD in history, right, yeah.
2: Yeah. You're right.
1: No, but what was confusing to me until I rewatched the film was um, that the fanboy in the back of the car, when when she asks him to tell her, her trauma to Angela Abar, says that her mom was Silk Spectre. And I was like, huh? And it wasn't until rewatching the film that I, that I remembered that her mother was Silk Spectre number one, and she inherited the role as Silk Spectre number two. And so I, I had forgotten that, that in, the, in the Watchmen universe, they, there's multiple people that play the roles. Like there were two different night owls, for example
0: right exactly yeah the things sort of get passed down
1: so when i watched the show i was super confused but it makes more sense now that i've that i've seen the film again
0: well now that we've cleared that up
1: yeah gene smart she plays <laughs> she plays uh silk specter she's known for uh, according to imdb she's in 24 garden state the accountant and sweet home alabama thanks there you go she's great she's awesome
2: i've seen her in a bunch of stuff she's just a really great actress
1: yeah, she's fantastic.
2: Really, really great. Yeah. And she the character she plays in this is really great. I love, uh, you know, again, the the sort of the dichotomy of being Silk Spectre and then retiring from that and becoming an FBI agent as the head of the anti-vigilante task force is like, it's just great. It,
1: it, yeah, when we get into the story stuff, remind me to circle back to, to her and why she would be motivated to be anti-vigilante because – So again, like watching the film, it made it much more clear. I was, I was super hazy on it and it's an interesting space to, to talk about.
2: Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's, um, if we're done talking about the cast, let's briefly talk about the music and then we'll move on to really the last thing to talk about, which is the, what the hell is going on here? We can kind of like, you know, pontificate about what's happening in the story so far.
1: That sounds good. Yeah.
2: So let's talk about the music for a second because I don't know if they took a cue from what Zack Schneider did in the film, but they used a very similar formula of having some really good score music and peppering that in with contemporary, you know, pop tunes. I don't want to say pop tunes, but, you know, sort of popular music. And again, some really great choices in there. The one that jumped out at me first was... Uh, the egg, the Beastie Boys track. Yeah. At the end of episode two, I was like, Oh
1: yeah. Well, and at first, when the when the when the tune plays, you don't know whether it's going to be Eggman or or the the music the song is sampled from. You know, uh,
2: Superfly. Exactly, exactly. That was it. That was exactly how I felt.
1: So it gets it. started, and I was like, Oh, Superfly, and I was like, Wait, this could be Eggman. And then it goes to Eggman, and I was like, yes! And then uh, rewatching it last night, um, it's Eggman as soon as as, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. breaks his handcuffs and makes boiled eggs, and he's like chomping on eggs while he's telling her he's the grandfather.
2: That's right. That's right. Because that's the end of that episode. And I also had, there was a piece of score music that jumped out at me as well, and I don't remember, hang
0: on one second.
1: I think this would probably be a good opportunity, Benny, for you to to bring the obvious to the table as far as who did the tunes
0: yes sir okay so sometimes a really great soundtrack is kind of transparent and it doesn't it's there and it moves the the movie along and it supports the emotion of the scene and sometimes the soundtrack is just fucking really good and it it's there in your face and it's its much of a part of the movie as everything and you know it's like you know when someone's going to start kicking some ass because the music starts telling you that somebody's going to start kicking some ass and the score in this film kicks some serious ass and it is by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and it is just fucking terrific and those guys have done some I mean Trent Reznor we all know and love and we spent a good time talking about him and Nine Inch Nails in our music episode but uh, they've done some uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have done some great stuff together. Uh, The Social network jesus and a a couple other things anyways i I, they're escaping me at the moment but the soundtrack in this series is just terrific
1: yeah we spoke about um we spoke about their scoring of the vietnam war ken burns documentary in that episode as well which is another fantastic fantastic one
0: yes thank you yeah every time it's it's really good stuff and it's it i mean i guess i notice it because it's you know it's very you can hear the trent Reznor in it for sure you know like yeah it it really sticks out at you
1: yeah a hundred percent ten seconds in i was like i bet you this is trent Reznor.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it really it really does um but like it's great you know and it's not it's not uh it's not too much it's 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 really good
1: oh it's perfect Yeah, it fits perfectly. Like it's very much Trent Reznor's sound, not to take away from Atticus Ross, but like it has his flavor to it for sure. And it just fits perfectly with with everything. Like it just fits perfectly. Like I just, you know, it kind of goes without saying, but I have like the biggest hetero man crush on that, dude. I love it. Love, love, love (laughs) Trent Reznor, man. And I'm so stoked that he did the soundtrack to this with Atticus Ross.
2: Yeah. Right on. So, folks, just so you got that, if you didn't catch that, uh, next week on the podcast, very special episode, Chad is
0: marrying Trent Reznor. That's true. (laughs) Make sure you tune in for that. I probably would. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to have a second marriage, you may as well marry Trent Reznor, you know? I mean, why wouldn't you?
1: Uh, Your comment (laughs) a minute ago, though, Kev, on um, the use of – you know, popular music mixed in with the Reznor and Ross score was, is, is a good point because it fits very much with a lot of the various other films we've talked about recently that have done the same thing where the score is interesting and unique. And then they sprinkle in some pop popular music and it just works perfectly.
2: It's like the magic bullet that we, we talked about that a lot when we did the boys episode. You yeah. Know, yep. Another really good superhero story. And I, I just want to say, I, there's one comment I want to make. It's, it's a little bit uh, side topic, but Ben was talking about the score, sometimes like the score in a film or a TV shows in the background and you don't really notice it. And I want to make either an addition or an addendum to that. Sometimes the score is in the background and it's doing its job excellently and you
0: don't necessarily hear it. Mm. That's what I was attempting to say there just to be clear. Sometimes you know it's good because you're not, it's not sticking out at you, you know? It's just it's just there doing its job. Right, exactly.
2: And then other times it's other times you are
0: noticing it and it's doing the same thing. Yeah, it's 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 a well-done score. Um and this I think is the other case where it's something that you you really notice it there, but it's also really good, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like a Vangelis blade runner. Like it's 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 not subtle, but it fits perfectly.
0: Right, right. Yeah. It's just
2: it's great. And you know, to who better to pick to do it than Reznor, man? He's such an accomplished entertainer, creator, performer,
0: musician. Kev, you had a you had a uh, specific uh, scene in mine or something uh where the score was particularly interesting i did the spot where the
2: score music really jumped out at me for the first time was when she put on the x-ray goggles the x-ray glasses rather and she started looking through cal's bedroom or office and found the hidden compartment in the closet like it just i was like wow this is really good
1: you mean judd
2: you know it's, uh sorry yeah wow yeah Judd
1: and finds the um kkk outfit or whatever
2: yeah exactly so that that's where the score really jumped out at me and i was like i I love when i notice like really you know awesome score music bed tracks and stuff like this
0: that's already great so that was it just that little comment yeah totally it might be an interesting uh, place to segue and start talking about the story and and what we think the fuck is going on because that's that's one question I really uh, still I'm not sure what the fuck the answer is to.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious to hear what you guys think.
0: Here, here's
2: I'll throw out a couple of facts. We know that Adrian Veidt is alive and he's living. We're not exactly sure where, possibly the UK, but possibly in the US, and he's under some sort of weird house arrest. <laughs> But he lives in a mansion on a huge estate. It is, in fact, 30 years after the events of the original comic miniseries, film, whatever. We saw a quick flashback scene with Hooded Justice that confirms that. We know that Dr. Manhattan moved to Mars. We know that Silk Spectre is the head of the anti-vigilante task
0: force.
1: We know that the Archie exists in this universe, but we don't know what the relevance of that is.
0: We do not yet know the fate of uh, Night Owl. That's right. Let the speculation begin.
2: Mm.
1: And we're we're assuming Rorschach is dead, as is as in the end of the movie. I mean, his journal is referenced, and he's dead. As yeah, exactly. And as a result, there's a white supremacist group that follows his journal as a Bible, so to speak. Right. And we got the Robert Redford, Nixon, Vietnam's the 51st state thing.
2: Right. Vietnam's the 51st state, right, exactly. And then also, and this is getting into the speculative territory, is Don Johnson's character... Well, no, it wouldn't because his name is different. If, his, if he was Night Owl, he would be...
1: I mean, he could have changed his name,
0: but... Yeah, I don't think it's him.
1: I don't either. I don't either, yeah.
0: But I'm still wondering why he was flying Archie. That's weird.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, at the same time, though, like, the Night Owl in the film is the second Night Owl. So he might have taken up the mantle of Night Owl, maybe. That's possible. But he isn't the same person that is the second Night Owl. And I think specifically because Silk Spectre dated him. And, you know, she would have had a different reaction to attending his funeral and seeing his body you would think definitely so that to me is the clearest indication that he's not night owl to my mind
0: yeah no he's not he's not yeah because they were they you're right chad they were together silk specter and, and night Owl. the or the yeah the next generation if you will uh that we would have seen in the comic book uh the you know yeah the main plotline of the comic book anyways
1: but both the comic and the film so like there's no really discrepancies there so like
0: no. yeah no, I mean, in fact, there's not there's not much discrepancy except for the uh, interdimensional squid.
1: Yeah, which is, I'm glad they went back to the squid in the show. I didn't have as much of a gripe about it being in the movie, changed in the movie, really. But like, I'm glad the show is stuck with canon, especially considering that I had forgotten that the in- interdimensional squid wasn't an interdimensional squid, but was... Adrian Veidt making it look like an interdimensional squid. So it was like a false flag thing, which I had kind of forgotten about until rereading the last couple issues of the comic last night. Right. Which, which was interesting because like Adrian Veidt genetically modifies something and uses Dr. Manhattan's powers to teleport the squid into New York and kill people in the comic with like a psychic blast. And um, the fact that it is not an interdimensional being at all and is a false flag operation is interesting because that means in the show, the squid, the squid falls are also likely to be false flag operations. And so the conspiracy theory discussed in the show of it being false flag is interesting because it, it probably is. It probably is the government's, Trying to make it seem like a real thing to kind of keep that, that, you know, peace that was achieved as a result of the squid in the movie, if that makes sense.
0: Hmm. Right. Yeah. That that ends the Cold War, as it were. And they're trying to maintain that peace. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting theory.
1: As far as the episodes go, without going scene by scene, like, you know, episode one was kind of the setup, making it crystal clear that instead of the Cold War as the underlying story, the, you know, racial difficulties and race war, so to speak, is the underlying theme, which finishes up with Judd getting killed. And then the second episode is kind of Angela trying to figure out what the hell happened. Like we can jump around a bit, but the third episode in particular for me was just like such a fantastically crafted episode with, um, Lori Blake as the head of the FBI's vigilante force. And like, it starts with her telling a joke in the weird phone booth. And like that episode in particular, I thought really opened the story up.
2: Definitely. I did too. I really did too. And I, I, I was unable to get through episode four full disclosure so that was the last one that I was able to watch, and I agree with you, Chad. That that's the one where it opened up and it started to make more sense. Yeah, what exactly was going on? There was also a lot going on in that episode. The whole thing of the bomb at the funeral was just great. The way Sister Knight handled that whole thing. Um, what? A, let's stick. To, let's stick to sort of speculative things. Things we don't really understand before we move into
0: uh other territory about the story
1: vite would be an interesting place to explore where is he and what's he doing there
0: yeah he's i have a i have a wild guess if you guys want to hear
1: yeah i do too i'm curious if it's the same guess
0: yes we do that's yes absolutely go i i think dr manhattan has him on mars
1: i was just gonna say i think he's either in an orbital facility or he's on mars 100 yeah
0: what
2: Get the fuck out of here! Why?
1: Because in episode three, he's launching his cloned minions in catapults
2: catapult
0: spacesuit. We, we, we assume cloned minions. That's true. There's a lot of mystery behind that as well.
1: Well, and in that episode too, he says, "I'm not your, I'm not your maker."
0: I didn't, I didn't know that meant that they weren't clones per se. Well,
1: no. Now that I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, because I didn't, I didn't put two and two together that maybe he's on Mars because Dr. Man hadn't put him there. I took it more as like he was banished to an orbital faci- orbital facility or maybe on the surface of Mars, whatever. But when you say, when you say Dr. Manhattan has him there, one of the last things Dr. Manhattan says is maybe I'll go and try and make life of my own. Right. And so maybe he's actually making those, you know, Crookshanks and whatever the guy's name is, Mr. Phillips or whatever.
0: Right. Could be. But yeah, I mean, there's just something fishy going on there because he's trying to watch, you know, the dead clones or whatever they are off of a catapult in a like homemade spacesuit. Um and yeah, and they sort of disappear. So I, I just have this feeling that like he's it's like a Truman show dome kind of thing. Right. On Mars.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: That that's my guess.
2: <laughs> that's an interesting guess. And I mean, if you think about it, like he's gone a little nuts. Definitely. Like if he's making, you know, the suit for Phillips to wear and then he dies, I think that's in episode three, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's definitely off his rocker. And if he was in the UK, why would there be a herd of literal American bison
0: roaming around on the grounds? You know. And also, why would he be trying to escape via a, a space catapult, if you will? You know, like it doesn't make any sense that he's like trying to build a, a pressure suit and catap- a pressure suit and a catapult that'll, you know. Mm. Yeah, he's trying. To, he's clearly trying to escape. So
1: I love, I love how it's very Leonardo da Vinci. You know, like the means that he has to to figure things out are so limited that he goes full da Vinci, and like similar to his obsession with Ramses and the Egyptians and Alexander the Great, he he's kind of you know gone full da Vinci and has this weird catapulty thing going on, which I, I appreciated.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that too. Jeremy Irons is such a great actor, so accomplished. I mean, we don't really need didn't even really need to talk about him in the beginning when we talked about the cast, but he's so great, he's perfect for this part. And I, I I've enjoyed being confused going into this. Like I, I don't think I've encountered this level of confusion at the beginning of a television show uh possibly ever
0: and I really like it, you know, like
2: as
1: long as it resolves, I'm with you 100%.
0: <laughs> yeah. If it's anything like the leftovers, it will resolve in fits and starts, you know, like, but also new questions will constantly be brought up. So it's sort of the, that style, you know, uh, of always sort of being in a state of confusion and, and not being sure about what's really happening, hmm. but it's an interesting way of doing storytelling. And I, I really enjoy it. I, I love the leftovers. So I, I'm like, kind of, you know, Ooh, like I got my popcorn, like <laughs> I'm ready. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm I'm like very, I'm highly anticipating, you know, just, mm. just, mm, mm. yeah, it's going to be good.
1: Well, you, you sprinkle in some fantastic music and then some awesome, it, the awesome cast that we mentioned and then the editing and transitions and like, it's just a very highly produced, polished story regardless of the actual story and then you take that like always confused popcorn kind of thing like you said and it just it makes for some good fucking tv man it's got all the bits
2: absolutely man and i will say i'm glad you brought up the editing chat i did have one note about the editing there was a transition when archie crashes in the field in that raid and it's like stars in the sky they pan up to the stars in the sky and then it transitions to, I'm pretty sure, wet pavement, and then to a coastline. Like, I just, I was like, wow. It was just a great little sequence, man. And I, it worked really beautifully. And I, uh, I thought it was great. You know, just little touches, little details like that really make the difference in uh, something that's really good versus something that's, you know, like a B-minus.
1: Those transitions are so tight. There's there's quite a few of them. And I mean, I could see how some people would be like, "Oh, that's too clever by half," but I like them a lot, you know. And there's like another one with the catapult where he's looking through the catapult at the sky in a, you know, and the camera is a circle of sky and that transitions to the moon, you know, like it, there's so many clever transitions.
2: Really like that. So really well um crafted. Well shot. Yeah, well well crafted, well shot, well edited. Let's talk about the idea of masks for a second. Yeah, cool. Because I'm really, I'm really digging why, like, we, we know why the Tulsa Police Department had to start wearing masks. And then it's like a couple of the officers start taking the masks up a notch. And you've got Looking Glass and Red Scare. And it's like, it's very easy to see, or, or maybe it's not, how easily you could make that transition from being somebody that's sworn to uphold the law as opposed to a vigilante who's really just out for justice. Yeah. You know? What do you what do you think about that? Like I I just, fi- I find that all very interesting. And the idea of like the cops are wearing their masks all the time mm.
0: because they can't reveal who their identity is.
1: It's an interesting blurring of the lines. Yeah.
0: It's like they've, they've legalized the vigilanteism. you know, they've just, they've, it's like, okay, we're just going to give you a badge and, you know, and now you work for us. And it's, it's all like under the, you know, it's all legal now. That's sort of how I took it. And all the, all of the individual, uh, uh, you know, all the, all the different police that have made individual identities for themselves seem to be like the detective level and above. And it's like the, you know, this, the patrol officers are, are all just, you know, sort of wearing the yellow face, you know, cover.
1: Hmm, It's interesting. I think like, I hadn't thought about the police thing too much until you mentioned it a second ago, Kev. Yeah. In terms of the blurring of the lines, because like generally speaking, the way that police forces interact with civilian populations in a variety of countries and through a variety of historical contexts is very like, I don't know, fraught maybe is the word. And and it's interesting that they choose to play with the idea that police can do whatever they want because they let each other get away with shit versus the vigilante and how they're they're choosing to blur that line and make the cops vigilantes. In this one, I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it. It's a great thought, though.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just like double back on something you just said about the cops doing whatever they want. Like, it's interesting that you say that because they're not exactly allowed to do whatever they want because the whole thing about the gun, the gun lock in yeah. the first episode, and then I think later in that episode or in the second episode is you know he he has to release the lock and then they release the lock on all the guns in the police department. You know, and the panda guy is like, "No, no, 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 this is a mistake. Don't do it." You know, like so
1: No, I think you're right. I think I think it ties back a little bit to that social commentary that we were having really early in the episode without risking diving back into it. It seems to me like the society in this fictional world from a governmental perspective is more liberal and as a result there are more laws on the police for example and yet the police still want to operate maybe a bit more like they used to in 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 old school kind of we do what we want kind of things because in that episode uh, the second episode red scare takes all the cops and they go and beat up everybody in nixon town so like it's a bit of a a push and pull like a tug of war between the rules and regulations and the senators and the government and then people just you know whether they're you know seventh cavalry or cops doing what they want to try and push back against society's rules i guess so it's a good point
2: Mm. yeah yeah well no your point is good as well because they do they do good they go to nixon town they're just like we're gonna put we're putting everybody in the paddy wagons like get in there it's like you can't just round, you can't just round people up like that. It's
0: like, you know, Yeah. it seems, it seems like the, the rules don't uh, count so much for the, the high level police. You know, it's like the, the, uh, The street force has to ask permission to unlock their gun, but those rules do not seem to apply to Sister Night or Red Scare or, or, uh, you know, Looking Glass by any stretch of the imagination, you know.
1: And that plays with the idea of people that are, you know, powerful can do what they want, which is, regardless of context, is an interesting space to play with. It reminds me of a story, if you don't mind. My uncle was a cop in Boston in whatever, the seventies. And, um, you know, being, being from the Walsh family, like we were super Irish and there's a story that he had, which was quite enlightening in terms of the kind of the cops, corruption of cops and cops doing what they want, where there used to be a term called blue money. And so if you go to a, crime scene and there's a dead body, you know that it's not an internal affairs setup. And so if there's a dead body, you can take the money and not worry about getting busted. Wow. Because internal affairs back in the day used to set up crime scenes with a couple hundred grand and to see if any of the cops would take the money and then they'd charge them for corruption and kick them out of the force. Wow. And so it was like the cops that chose to do whatever they wanted to do could avoid getting busted by, you know, authorities within the police department by only taking money from crime scenes that had dead bodies. And so it was just like a a kind of a real world example of how to push the boundaries on the rules and do whatever you want while still trying to operate within the rules, so to speak. Right. Wow.
2: Interesting factoid, man.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting story but.
2: Yeah, and, and, and an interesting thought too. Um, let's let's jump back to the speculation pool again. What I, I now I didn't see the fourth episode. Feel free to spoil it for me if if you find out. She lifts Louis Gossett Jr. into the car, her car, and then this magnetic you know cable comes down and picks the car up. And she's like, "What the fuck?" And then like car disappears, Darwich disappears, and then like we don't, and then the car crashes down in front of. Silk Specter out in front of another building when she's walking out of the talk to Doctor Manhattan phone booth and Louis Gossett Junior is not in the car. Like what? I, I don't. What, what do you think happened there? Or tell me what happens.
1: Oh, uh, I suppose that it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because that was a minor annoyance that I had, which was I enjoyed, I enjoyed the car dropping as a punchline to the joke that she had the punchline to with the brick falling on God.
2: Right. Yes, absolutely.
1: And I enjoyed the fact that it like kind of hinted at Dr. Manhattan communicating because it pans up to the sky and you see the red star or the red, you know, dot in the sky which is Mars.
0: Right, that was how I took it was that.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: That was like his answer. Like
1: <laughs> but the opening scene of the next episode shows that that was not the case or at least right strongly hints that that was not the case and that, you know, it was... It could still be. It could, but, like, it, it seemed way more related to the random magnetic thing that dropped down just flying back and dropping it again, you know? And so the random magnetic thing is likely attached to this air vehicle that is being used at that weird giant clock thing that's in a few scenes in some of the earlier episodes that the billi- the trillionaire that purchases Adrian Vite's business after he goes away, is building a giant clock, which is going to be the first wonder of the new world.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the, The Millennium Clock, is that what it's called?
1: Yeah. So Lady True is the name of this trillionaire, and she... She is responsible for those weird payphones, the Dr. Manhattan payphones, and basically owns all of the Vite shit. And it kind of insinuates that she is probably connected with Vite on Mars thing in a way of either trying to get him out of there or being connected in another way. But it doesn't really, it's more like hinting as opposed to anything legitimate.
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot of mystery around Lady True and the Millennium Clock and all of that in Lewis Gossett Jr and (laughs) yes okay all right so so wait
2: so answer this question was the car that dropped in front of silk specter was that regina king's car yes it was where's lgj Louis gossett jr
1: with lady true which you find out in the next episode
2: oh my god all right okay
1: but in terms of this episode episode four like episode one is set up two is expansion of episode one episode three in my opinion was a setup and episode four is expansion of episode three
2: okay right
1: so I don't know if it'll follow that same formula on the episode that just aired a couple hours ago but you know y- you're not really having anything spoiled per se in episode 4 Um, it just kind of expands on the the joke telling episode
0: interesting okay right yeah it's sort of uh, some, re- some resolve and some new questions and that's yeah mm. and that's okay folks it's sort of the this, this style of the writing yeah yeah right
2: Right,
1: but I don't really know where the hell this is going to go. I think your your th- theory of him on Mars with Manhattan is exactly in line with kind of what I was thinking, which I didn't pick up on at all first viewing, but watching it all a second time, I was like, oh, okay. It took me another watch through to kind of form form that thought, but I, I share that thought with you.
0: Yeah,
2: thinking back on those episodes, that is a th- definitely a sound theory, Jarhego. I uh, we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. When you first started talking about it, I was like, "That's a little lofty, man," but I I could totally see that. I don't know if I could see Manhattan like recreating like an entire,
0: you know, essentially a terrarium (laughs) for Adrian to live in. But it would be no trouble for Doctor Manhattan, though. Think about it—the kind of stuff he's done. Yeah, you're right.
1: And different from the movie in the comic, Manhattan is way more sympathetic to Vites killing of all those people to save the world. In the film, he's kind of like, yeah, I guess we could let you get away with it. But in the book, he's like, you're totally right. So yeah. um if it's following more of the graphic novel, you know, then they would be much more allied than anything else. And the only kind of devil's advocate you can really make, which would make sense to argue in your favor, Kev, is that he just stopped caring about humanity. Full stop. So why the fuck would he care about Adrian White mm. and building him a terrarium, which is legitimate,
2: right? Sure, but he could have been convinced otherwise. Maybe on outside is well. I mean, dude, if he could be psych- if he could be manipulated with his psych profile by Adrian White in 1985, I mean, it's. I, I don't think that he's beyond reproach. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Which is one of the more interesting things about the character of Dr. Manhattan is that he's treated like a god throughout. And at the end, you find out that he actually has, you know, human emotion and is kind of, like you said, manipulate able to be manipulated. So
2: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Boys, I think that's just about all we've got for that. And there's an episode that just aired. So excited to watch that. And we're going to get to part two of this series a little bit later on. We're going to wait until it wraps up. So we're going to do the next five episodes Uh, next time we revisit this, folks. So be sure to look out for and tune into that. Uh, Next week, we've got coming up the... I don't really know what you call this movie. The shit show that is Nothing nothing But Trouble. Yeah, it's a shit show. It's got (laughs) Nothing But Trouble (laughs) with Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Demi Moore, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people are in it. Uh, Digital Underground's in it. Yeah, man. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned for that. Holy moly. Just want to say thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on another time.
1: Love you a long time.
2: Smell you later. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode, folks. Next week, we're going to be talking about the classic Nothing But Trouble starring Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Demi Moore, and the Digital Underground. You can find the show notes for today's episode in your podcast app of choice or at our website ebd.fm forward slash episodes forward slash 31. You can shoot us questions using the Twitter hashtag AskEBD. You can find me at Mulverine on Twitter. That's M-O-H-L-V-E-R-I-M-E. Chad is at ChadNormal on Twitter. And Ben is at Jarhego on Twitter. That's J-A-R-H-E-E-G-O. I'd like to take a minute and thank everybody for tuning into the show. It really means a lot to me and the boys, and we really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show, there are two great ways you can do it. First is by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast models. Or you can tell somebody to check out the show. Word of mouth is incredibly powerful and incredibly effective. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.